Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California environmental groups have joined others in suing the Biden administration to stop the controversial Willow oil drilling project. It would extract some 600 million barrels of oil from Alaska's pristine federal lands and leave a massive carbon footprint, just as a UN report today finds the world is less likely to meet an ambitious climate target and more likely to face the most catastrophic climate change impacts. But many Alaska lawmakers are cheering the project's approval, including its lone Democratic Congress member. And Biden officials say the law wasn't on their side when it came to canceling the project. We'll get into the nuances after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California environmental groups, some indigenous communities, and young climate activists are blasting the Biden administration for approving last week a major oil drilling project in Alaska's wilderness. It's known as the Willow Project. Interior Secretary Deb Holland tried to temper their anger by highlighting the administration's efforts to reduce the project's size and other concessions it extracted from oil giant ConocoPhillips in a Twitter video. President Biden has done more than any other in history to invest in our nation's lands, waters, and clean energy. The clean energy transition will not happen overnight, but it will happen with all of us working together. I am confident that we are on the right path, even if it's not always a straight line. We take a closer look at the massive oil development on federal land and how we got here under a president who promised no more drilling, period, on the campaign trail. And joining me now is Tim Puko, climate correspondent covering politics and policy for The Washington Post. Hi, Tim Puko. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. John Leshy is also with us, professor of law at UC College of the Law in San Francisco and the Interior Department's solicitor under President Bill Clinton. Welcome to the show, John Leshy. Thank you. Tim Puko, I'd love to start with you. Can you just Remind us of the scale of the Willow Project. Sure. I, the scale is one of its defining features. It is the, the biggest oil project, the biggest oil development under consideration in the United States right now. It's being developed by uh, one of the largest oil companies in the world, ConocoPhillips. Um, it will produce at its peak, uh, well, what's estimated to be uh, the equivalent of about 30 days supply for the entire United States. It's, it's that big. Um, we haven't seen anything like it 
uh, on federal lands uh, in, in years. It, it's, it's one of the biggest projects, one of the biggest oil developments uh, in the history of developing oil on, on federal territory. Yeah, it's projected to have like a 30-year lifetime. Yes, that's right. Probably um, only about 25 for, for drilling. It, it takes you know, several years to construct. But once an investment that large is made and a, a, an oil development is, is producing for, for 25 years, it, it could still produce well beyond that. And what kind of climate impact is it projected to have, Tim? Um, it, it depends on how you measure. Uh, I know that's that's like not <laughs> not not the easiest answer for for people to digest. Um, but as you can imagine, that with any project that that produces that much oil, um, it's also going to produce uh, a lot of emissions. Nine point two million metric tons of carbon dioxide a year. Uh, that's equal to driving about two million gasoline powered cars. And just describe for us what the landscape is like where this project is supposed to be. Well, what everyone who is in Alaska likes to point out is that it's it's tundra, um, but it is it is pristine. Um, this is a region that is, um, you know, one of the, the largest expanse of public land that the federal government has, uh, but it's also one that's set aside specifically for oil and gas drilling for about 100 years now. Uh, special laws that were passed, or at least, at least recognized for that long, I should say, the laws that gave it that special status were passed in the 1970s. Uh, and even though it was set aside for oil drilling for a long time, it was relatively lightly explored. The you know the, the first developments have really only happened um, in, in a serious way over the past decade or so, and even those have been relatively small. So over all that time, you know this land has become um, is still a key habitat for polar bears, for caribou, uh, for many uh, sensitive species uh, of birds. Um, there there are a, a lot of lakes. Um, that uh, you know, Alaska is 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 widely renowned for being wilderness, a home to a lot of sensitive species, and and, and this is in you know, the heart of the Arctic. It's it's only about thirty miles from the Arctic Ocean. Uh, it's it's that far north in Alaska. Wow, John Leshy, was there really no hope for the Biden administration of halting the project on legal grounds? Well, it would have been uh, very, very difficult. Uh, the problem is, as Tim pointed out, this is a petroleum reserve. It was set aside as a petroleum reserve 100 years ago, and Congress, uh, about 40 years ago, it gave it to the Interior Department to, to conduct a leasing program. ConocoPhillips has leases in this area, some of them decades old. So these leases give them certain legal rights. Uh, and it, it, if, if the administration had turned them down flat, uh, they would have gone to court and probably recovered billions of dollars in damages, and money that, by the way, would have come out of the Treasury and could be used maybe more effectively somewhere else to spend uh, finding climate change. So the, the legal rights that they had were, were definitely and had to be a factor uh, in the decision. Uh, if I could also say uh, uh, what the Im implications of this are, uh, it's important to remember that uh, I I've seen some overheated rhetoric about what this means, that it's a you know catastrophe for the climate, it's a carbon bomb, uh, it's an act of terrorism uh, uh, against the climate. Uh, I think it really has to be put in perspective here. Uh, the amount of production that could come out of this overall uh, would be maybe a, a bit over 1% of the U.S.'s current uh, production. And I've seen it say, well, it's the equivalent of two coal-fired power plants uh, every year. 
Well, most people don't realize we still have 225 coal-fired power plants operating around the country. So I think the Willow Project has to be put in, in that perspective. Well, uh, let me invite listeners to weigh in with their questions about the Willow Project or their reactions to the way the Biden administration handled it, the rationale for approving it. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Well, this listener tweets, amusing when progressives claimed they could move Joe Biden left, it's pretty clear that Biden and the Democrats work for the same bosses as the GOP, which are Wall Street and the Pentagon. Would you put that in the category of overheated rhetoric, John Leshy? Well, I think that's right. Given the, the, the dilemma that they faced here with these leases uh, issued a long time ago, and the uh, other thing to keep in mind is uh, the politics here uh, involve protecting a new Democratic member of the House from Alaska, who, by the way, is an Alaska native and who by the way, has said that getting the Willow Project approved was her single biggest priority. Uh, and uh, she argued, and this is the administration's rationale as well, that it's a, it's a really uh, should operate as a bridge to phasing out fossil fuels that will help Alaska Natives. And, and many Alaska Natives actually support approval of the Willow Project, even though, as, as the local congressperson points out, that they are not blind to the impacts of of climate change. And so that was definitely a factor. She's the first Democratic member of the House elected from Alaska and the first Alaska native elected to the House uh, in a half century. And you're talking about Representative Mary Peltola. Well, Tim Pucco, talk a little bit about how the Biden administration sort of tried to soften the blow of this approval. Uh, some of the things that the administration was able to negotiate to make the project smaller, but also some additional things that it approved. Yes, they they set off the rest of the Arctic Ocean that is in U.S. territory um, aside for to, to end oil and gas leasing there. Of course, there wasn't um, a lot of oil and gas leasing, a lot of interest from the industry um, to begin with, um, but, but they did set that aside. Um, they also worked out a deal uh, with ConocoPhillips uh, to set aside uh, another 68,000 acres uh, of its oil rights off limits. So, you know, Conoco, as John alluded to, has these oil leases that have existed um, for more than two decades now. Uh, the company has willingly relinquished some of that. Uh, and then they've set aside another 13 million acres, or they're planning to. They, there has to be a rulemaking process, uh, but, but they're planning to write new protections for about 13 million acres um, in the petroleum reserve that, that we're talking about. So that would take another very large chunk of land um, that right now could potentially be open to oil and gas drilling uh, and, 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 and make it not available for that. Of course, you know, that rule, again, will have to be written. Um, it, it, there is a risk that if there's a different administration that comes in uh, into place uh, in, in 2025, uh, that they could undo that. A lot of these rules are, are made almost to be overturned. Uh, and so you know, this is something that will be probably a hot button issue in one way or another for, for years, if not decades. Ahead of exactly. Exactly. And so as we're seeing, environmental groups are not appeased by these actions by the administration, Tim. 
Oh, no, Tim, did I lose you? Willow, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm still here. Sorry about that. Um, no, because the Willow Project had taken on such a symbolic significance. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't want to reduce it to that. I don't, I don't want to make it seem like just a symbol. As I alluded to in the beginning, it is a giant oil project, the, the type of project that we just don't see that often, uh, especially anymore in the United States. Uh, and so that gave it a, a certain amount of weight and gravity with the environmental community. Um, and, and they weren't willing to trade um, some, I think, marginal steps forward in conservation here or there in areas that, as I alluded to, aren't even getting a lot of oil and gas industry interest right now um, in exchange to, for, for, um, for their kind words as the administration lets this project go. Um, but, but they, you know, I, I would just emphasize, as John did, that there are trade-offs to all of them. Um, the, the administration, even if they took some radical steps, declared an emergency to try to prevent this, you know, the, the legal issues that John is talking about mean that that ultimately this project might have gone forward anyway, might have gone forward, um, plus ConocoPhillips could have won potentially billions of dollars um, in a legal dispute with the federal government. Uh, it, it's, there, I just want to emphasize that, that, that there are trade-offs and, and that has been, um, while the environmental community hasn't wanted to hear that, it has been something that has been core to the administration's deliberations over this project. We're talking with Tim Pucco, climate correspondent covering politics and policy for The Washington Post, and John Leshy, the Interior Department's solicitor under President Bill Clinton, now professor of law at UC College of the Law, San Francisco. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Do you object to the Willow Project? Do you support it? Why or why not? What are your questions about it? And what's your reaction to the Biden administration's rationale for approving it? Email forum at kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786. I see your calls now. We'll get to those right after the break. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about President Biden's approval last week of ConocoPhillips 
controversial Willow Project on pristine federal land in Alaska. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your comments and calls, 866-733-6786, the number, email address, forum at kqed.org. We're at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Erica in Elk Grove. Hi, Erica. You're on. Hi, good morning. Uh, thanks for having my uh, call. I just want to say thank you for having this discussion today. And, um, yeah, I am deeply frustrated about it. I feel like that place is, like the other person was saying, it's a pristine place for that those animals and then for the Arctic. So I don't understand how the two can come together. <laughs> how yeah. how the government can say, okay, this is going to be good for the short term because we need to do the transition, but on the long term, you know. So, yeah, yeah I mean... Erica, yeah, thank you. I can I can hear your concern through this. And, and Tim, I, I do want to know what environmental groups are doing. They are suing the Biden administration, as I understand it. But can you can you talk about what they're arguing in there? Are they arguing something similar to the sentiment that Erica is sharing here about just how pristine that land is and the impact that it could have? That's part of it. One of the reasons that Alaska gets so much attention from environmental groups is that it is one of our last spots for um, basically a wilderness that is not divided up, unsegmented wilderness. Um, you have giant tracts of land where you have no development at all or almost no development at all. And for a, a lot of uh, species, especially animals, you know, many thrive in, in dense forests, um, in, in large, like uh, un, unintruded upon areas uh, where they can have, you know, where they basically hide, they, they don't have to interact with modern development. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in, in the United States, in, in the lower 48 states, it's just much, much, much harder to find any place like that. And even in large places around the world, it's those, those types of spaces are becoming rarer all the time. Um, the Arctic in, in the Western Hemisphere, both Alaska and Canada, have many of those spaces left. Uh, and, and so environmentalists often, you know, that's, that's where their hardest push often comes in to preserve them. But I will yeah. say that, you know, the, the climate argument goes along with that. that that's their, their other main argument has just been that the sheer amount of emissions um, is, is intolerable at a time where we're quickly headed towards, you know, 1.5 degrees Celsius or, or, or 2 degrees of global warming. And there is, a, you know, an idea that, the, that, that because carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions stay in the atmosphere for such a long time, that the world only has so much room to pump more of those emissions into the atmosphere. You're kind of locking in, you know, you know that this project is, is 30 years long. Um, you're kind of locking in then, you know, basically 25 to 30 years of further emissions from burning the oil that comes from the development at a time when pretty much every scientist says that we need to be tailing off those emissions. And so that's, that's the other key argument that those groups are making. Yeah, well, and already isn't there construction happening leading to or around where the drill sites are supposed to be, Tim, in this pristine wilderness? Yes, you can imagine that a project this large and uh, with this level of engineering in this remote place and sensitive environment requires you know, a, a pretty intricate um, development. And so right now we're still in early stages. I, I don't know all the details. Conoco has said 
on the, they're starting you know, gravel mining. You have to build roads, start with gravel. You, you're making pads to put these. Um, to, uh, you're basically creating a drilling site, uh, and often gravel is just the way you know that's that's your surface at the drill site. So you know the the best time to do a lot of that construction in the Alaskan Arctic is actually when it's cold, uh, when things are still frozen. It makes the ground more solid, easier for equipment to move around uh, before everything thaws. Uh, and so they, they've started that work right away, um, construction to do their gravel mining and, and to build the roads uh, to get back and forth from the site. John Leshy, do you think that these environmental lawsuits have a good chance of prevailing, that they could even ultimately stop the project or halt it temporarily? I would say it's a very slim chance, frankly, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One is the basic environmental argument is that the administration did not look carefully enough at the environmental impacts. And this has been through several environmental reviews. I mean, the history here is that the Trump administration approved this project. And uh, then that was set aside in court because the court said you hadn't looked carefully enough. So they went back and took another look. And, and that process resulted in this decision. I should say that uh, uh, you, you can't depend upon the courts here to, to bail you out. I mean, when Biden came into office in early 2021, he suspended all new oil and gas leasing on federal lands, and a Trump-appointed judge set that aside. And the, and the, and the courts, which are, you know, as we know, uh, increasingly dominated by Republican-appointed judges, uh, have issued a bunch of rulings that have sort of muddied the legal waters here. Yeah. In my judgment, the most, the, the biggest mistake that the environmental groups could make at this point is to disengage from the political process. I think they have to keep the pressure on because, as Tim pointed out, the administration here has said, we want to make Willow the sort of pivot away from oil development in the Arctic. And we, are, we want to put the rest of the petroleum reserve off limit uh, from further leasing. Uh, and they have to be pressed to, to, to make sure that happens. And you're doing it, remember, in the face of a Congress, which is pretty hostile, as well as the court system. The Congress, uh, remember last year, tied uh, new permitting for renewable energy on public lands to more oil and gas leasing on public lands. That was thanks to the Republicans plus uh, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, uh, doing that in Congress. So there's pressure to open up the entire Arctic to oil and gas drilling. And the, and the Biden administration, I think to its credit, is saying, no, we want to we wanna get away from that. We want to pivot away from that. And so uh, political, the politics is going to decide this in the end, not what the courts do. And I think that's important to keep in mind. So continue to engage if you care about the Arctic. Continue to try to hold politicians, not only the Biden administration, but people in Congress accountable to make that happen. Again, and if I could just jump in real quick yes, to, to, to back up some of John's points uh, and to address a specific thing that the caller was asking about. You know, I, I, I will say that I don't I don't understand anybody in this administration to be happy about doing this. Everything that they've said publicly uh, expresses in, incredible reluctance. And I haven't heard anything different behind the scenes either. They, they don't really want to do this. Um, but as John described, they're locked in both by the legal requirements and also to some degree by the economic requirements. Um, the economic devastation of going off of oil right now uh, very quickly could be extreme. You know, 
cutting off a huge source of oil. And this is, of course, something that isn't, as I alluded to before, it's going to be a while before it comes on. But the administration has to balance its, its pretty aggressive climate policies with demands from you know, average American consumers to keep oil coming, at least as it is now, just to have a stable economy for people to still be able to get around. It's a very car-dependent economy, and the administration has, has, has through great pains, he tried to make, have this balance between you know, pushing their climate agenda forward and slowing down, in many cases, as John described, oil and gas leasing on federal lands, while also at times still supporting things that you know the, the law gives developers a right to do, and that the way the economy is still dependent on oil are, are kind of required just to keep things stable. Well, let me bring Jennifer Lakey into the conversation, Global Director of Energy for the World Resources Institute. Jennifer Lakey, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So we do hear this a lot, that we do need to transition away from fossil fuels, but we are not there yet. There is still such demand for oil and gas. And before we make that transition to renewables, we have to have a a consistent supply, and it's better for us not to be dependent on foreign sources. What's your What's your reaction to that argument? I think there are three things that have me concerned. And the first is that, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of reports that U.S. gasoline uh, demand may already be peaking. Uh, That, in fact, our our transition to electric vehicles, uh, the increased fuel efficiency that we're seeing uh, may mean that we're actually starting the decline uh, of the need for oil and gas this decade. Uh, And certainly the Inflation Reduction Act uh, incentives are going to further hasten that decline. The second thing that has me concerned is that it is a really uh, unfortunate uh, shift away from what the IEA has uh, declared is a need to no longer uh, explore or produce additional oil and gas in the global uh, energy economy if we are to meet our climate targets. So clearly there's- You're talking about the International Energy Agency, yes. That's correct, right. That, and there's a precedent here that says that if the richest country in the world is going to continue to explore and produce new natural gas and oil uh, facilities, and uh, we have very little credibility if we're asking developing countries or any other country to forego that development. And then the third thing that I'm really concerned about is that, in fact, these assets, this production capacity, by the time it gets online, uh, may may not have the financial returns that folks are expecting, in which case the potential for that investment to to be stranded Um, increases dramatically. And that's money that could be used to further develop renewables and to help speed the transition away from oil and gas. So we're diverting funds that we could be using towards a more uh, safe, climate safe, new technology uh, future. Well, it sounds like uh, Sandra, the sister, agrees with you. What is the plan for transporting this oil? This decision is setting a terrible example for the world. It is hypocritical in regard to our climate strategy. I will find it hard to explain to my friends who challenge my democratic positions, and I will need to up my donations to the environment. These short-term gains aren't worth the long-term destruction. Would you agree with that sentiment, Jennifer? I do. I think your caller is right on. And in fact, 
we know that there are technologies today that would uh, benefit from this type of investment. And, and the Inflation Reduction Act does try to strike a balance between uh, the opportunities for incentives for new technology at further incentivizing production of oil and gas works against those goals. Let me go to caller Johnny in Silicon Valley. Hi, Johnny. You're on. Well, let me give you a neither-nor perspective, and your your people would know who I used to work for. I My family all were Texas A&M, petroleum engineers. I work for Luke Keller um, and ask them who Luke Keller is. We He took over a certain company when the Deepwater Horizon went down. We're, Oil production is worldwide, and what they're trying to do, I'm going to give a different perspective on this. The United States needs to be in a position, whether we drain that oil or not, that we cannot be reliant upon or driving up the price of oil that gives Vladimir Putin and other dictators the ability around the world to start wars. And so I would give Biden a defense on what he's doing strategically is putting the United States in a position because the United States military is the largest user, single user of diesel and petroleum products in the world. And he's got to put the United States strategic interest in check. And I just want to hear their response Mm. to that, that no one's thinking of the real reason Biden's doing this is not what anyone's talking about. It's actually, he has to have the United States in a position so environmentally, if he could drive the price of oil, if we could drive the price of oil down to $20 a barrel, we could put these dictators out of business. Johnny, thank you. Um, it has been brought up that we are in a different geopolitical situation, a much more vulnerable one now with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and so on, Jennifer Lakey. So what is your response to that when, when people say, yes, this is also the reason that we need to make this shift? Yeah, well, I I think that's a a common argument. And I would agree that energy security has never uh, reached the level of sort of political rhetoric that we're seeing it have today. Um, And the real concern uh, that there is around oil and gas money in our economies. Uh, One thing I would also note is that the Department of Defense has long uh, sought to minimize its dependence on diesel and other fossil fuels that they have to transport. The transportation and requirement for fuel inputs is in itself an energy security concern. Uh, That puts us, makes our troops very vulnerable to needing those kind of fuel inputs in highly volatile situations where they could be stranded without it. And the Department of Defense is one of the major reasons we have developed such a robust uh, alternative energy uh, technology investment platform in the United States today. Well, Cameron writes, where will the oil extracted in the Willow Project go? Will it remain in North America and alleviate dependence on OPEC? Or will it be shipped globally? Of course, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, which is what OPEC stands for. Jennifer Lakey. Yeah, much of this oil is for export purposes. And and I think that the, the reality is that as we already have uh, become a uh, net exporter of oil and gas. Um, our economy it benefits from the sale of this oil and gas to other countries and other markets, and that does drive lower prices for uh, for economies around the world and helps our economy. Uh, the question, I think, as I noted, is that we recognize that the there are real implications of us continuing to. 
uh, become a stronger oil and gas power internationally that are also negative because it it removes the uh, the impetus uh, to change fossil fuel subsidies in other countries. It continues the perverse dependency uh, that we see on uh, on these industries elsewhere as other countries scramble to be able to actually produce their own so that they feel more secure in their energy economies. Well, Jennifer Lakey, I know you need to leave us. I really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Jennifer Lakey is Global Director of Energy for the World Resources Institute. John Leshy is with us, Interior Department Solicitor under President Bill Clinton, Professor of Law at UC College of the Law, San Francisco, Tim Pucco, Climate Correspondent covering politics and policy for the Washington Post. Tim Pucco, one of the things this conversation is reminding me of a little bit is a point that uh, Representative Peltola said, which is that she would rather the oil and gas be drilled in the U.S. as opposed to other nations. There was widespread support across Alaska for this project, even among some indigenous groups. Can you talk about that a little bit just before the break here? We're coming up on a break. Sure. I think this is a very important thing. You know, we're talking about a project that's happening in Alaska where there are very strong opinions and economic outcomes that are tied to this. And so you've seen um, some opposition from locals who are concerned about degradation of air quality, degradation of of habitat for wildlife that they depend on for a subsistence lifestyle. Um, Obviously, any sort of oil development, especially large ones, you always have the risk of of spills and leaks, you know, the, the kind of unpleasantries that come with industrial development. Um, but there are plenty of Alaska Native groups um, who are also really keen on this development because it would be such a shot in the arm for the state's economy and for um, them personally. You know, they, they have business interests in Alaska Native corporations that often get revenue from, from taxing oil developments like this. Um, the state's economy broadly is dependent on oil, and the Alaskan oil industry has been in decline for a long time as shale drilling in the lower 48 and, and other types of drilling elsewhere have, have taken up more investment from the industry. So even though there is you know, a, a pretty significant amount of resistance from, from many locals who live in the area closest to the development, there are also many other people around Alaska who are hoping for this to be a, a huge boost to their economy. Well, we'll hear more about some of the resistance after the break. We're talking about President Biden's approval last week of ConocoPhillips, very controversial Willow project on federal land in Alaska. And we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the Willow Project this hour and answering your questions about the Willow Project, hearing your reactions to the Biden administration's rationale for it, whether you support or oppose the project, why or why not. Email forum at kqed.org. Call us 866-733-6786. Post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Holly writes, short-term economics is an insane argument. We have nearly no time to get off of fossil fuels without destroying all economies, as all commerce is dependent on the life support systems and resources that the earth provides. In addition, there are more jobs and better jobs in the clean 21st economy than in the old, dirty 19th and 20th century technology. Technologies. We have more than enough fossil fuels now for energy and to complete the transition to renewables. Fossil fuel companies know that and therefore are moving to increase fossil fuel-based plastics and petrochemicals, which need to be stopped. We're talking with Tim Pucco, climate correspondent covering politics and policy for The Washington Post, John Leshy, professor of law at UC College of the Law. Jennifer Lakey was with us just before the break, global director of energy for the World Resources Institute. You are listeners, clearly, and I want to bring another person to the conversation now, Yesenia Funes, climate director at Atmos, a climate and culture magazine, who recently wrote an article titled, The Willow Project Would Be a Public Health Crisis for Alaska. Yesenia, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Talk about what you learned about how it would be a public health crisis. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really important to first contextualize the reality of what already exists in this part of Alaska. This is, of course, you know, the petroleum reserve. And so there's already a ton of oil and gas infrastructure, rigs, pipelines, stations, um, and the clean air and water uh, of the communities has been already put at risk as a result of this. And so in my reporting, you know, I spoke to one advocate in particular, um, Sikinik Maupin, whose mother lives there and whose relatives and, and family friends live in the region. And, you know, it's it's quite clear that um, the health impacts of all of this oil and gas infrastructure um, is devastating. You know, we're talking about cancer. We're talking about respiratory illnesses. Um, And I think probably what's most underreported is the issue of mental health um, and what the loss of these lands, the loss of um, these cultural traditions means for Alaskan Native people, um, especially given not just the oil and gas pollution, but also the long-term climate impacts that come from the emissions related to this infrastructure. Yeah, you talked about just the anxiety that this creates. I think the other thing uh, that I was really struck by was just the extent to which some of the people that you talked to talked about how much um, the environment has changed with regard to thinning of the ice, certain practices that they've done for so long, things that happen when they are hunting and so on. Can you just describe some of those for us? Yeah, you know, the Arctic 
has already warmed four times faster than the, the rest of the world. Um, this is over the past 40 years as a result of climate change. Um, you know, roads are being swallowed by water, whether that's from flooding or just the erosion right of lands. Um, hunters who historically have been able to, you know, walk across sea ice and travel um, that way to, to reach um, food sources, caribou, um, you know, whaling, uh, there's now more instances of folks falling through the ice, sometimes dying. Um, and, you know, my, my source expressed that even the animals are behaving strangely, you know, and, and for many Alaska Native communities, um, the, the relationship to wildlife is not the same relationship that maybe some of us have, you know, for them, these, these animals are kin, they're family. And so seeing polar bears, you know, wander into communities when they historically haven't or seeing, um, you know, walruses just kind of um, beaching themselves um, on ice. I'm sorry, beaching themselves on shore because there's no more ice for them to, um, you know, lay out on has been um, also like mentally exhausting and stressful for for these communities, given you know, the long, long histories um, and knowledge that they have of what these behaviors traditionally have looked like. Um, we've been talking a little bit about how, though, Alaska Native populations have been divided over the Willow Project in terms of support and opposition. Can you just give us a sense of the tensions that might exist here, but whether or not it's creating irrevocable differences among communities? Yeah, you know, I... I I know that Timothy at the Washington Post was talking about this, um, and, and it's such an important point um, because Indigenous communities, Alaska Native communities, they're not a monolith, right? There are various different um, groups and communities within this um, Indigenous sort of title. Um, and there are a lot of tensions because the reality is that there are remote, these are remote communities, some of which don't have roads, some of which don't have access to uh, running water. Um, some communities, you know, the the introduction of um, a project like the Willow Project could mean increased education resources, you know, and so this is the reality of what many of these communities face. Um, they're being offered nothing or they're being offered something which could, you know, which very well will can threaten and exacerbate the health issues they're already facing. Um, but we're living in a time where the government is not putting other um, options on the table for them. And that's a big part of what advocates who oppose Willow Project are, um, you know, arguing. Why is it that oil and gas is the only option being given to us when we need to be transitioning off of fossil fuels? A, a new IPCC report came out just today reminding us of the urgency of the climate crisis and the need to act now. Um, so why can't there be other um, investments being put forth, whether that's, you know, the decommissioning of present day oil and gas infrastructure, clean energy infrastructure, um, ecotourism, right? Why, why is it that oil and gas is the only option being given to folks? And if they don't accept that, then they're just left with nothing. Um, and so it's a real tension. It's, um, it's heartbreaking because I do think that there's, you know, a division that's coming as a result of it and communities being pit against one another. Um, when at the end of the day, I think everyone really wants the same thing, which is to not just survive and, you know, this really extreme ecosystem, but to thrive in it um, and to be able to give their children um, something better than what they had. Um, and unfortunately, the climate crisis is creating a situation where 
you know, one option, both options are not great, um, but one option sounds better, at least in the short term. Let me go to caller Noah in Richmond. Hi, Noah, you're on. Hi, I just wanted to respond to a kind of general sense, uh, not the current guests, but from the rest of guests on this uh, segment, essentially just making excuses left and right about this is only a small part of U.S. oil production. This is strategically necessary. On and on and on. There's a legal fight. At a certain point, you have to realize that this is an existential threat to the species and to the way that we make our life on the planet. And the direction that we're going in is wrong. So when do we change the direction? I don't, I don't care about Vladimir Putin getting a little bit more money from his oil sales. Is there really no other strategic way to manage that? Can we not reduce demand, on, demand for oil in other ways? I, I, just, I find it patently absurd that all we, all we get from the highest offices of power are excuses for why this is necessary. It's like they don't think they're going to live long enough to see the impacts. Ask yourself why there are no more bug splats on your windshield when you drive on the five. It's happening right now. Noah, thank you. John Leshy, could I get your, your response? Sure. Um, I think the, the Willow decision of the Biden administration is trying to signal as clearly as possible that they want to make a change in direction. And they see Willow as actually a pivot point because they are tying the approval of the Willow project to ruling out further petroleum leasing in the petroleum reserve and offshore and onshore. And so they really want to make this a pivot point to the transition away from fossil fuels. They are just, unfortunately, as they see it, and I have some uh, sympathy for how they see it, uh, they see this as they've been locked in by a hundred year history of petroleum development here. And they are at this point where they have a company with leases and they're saying, we will give you part of what you want. But in return for that, we are going to insist on uh, no further major development in the Arctic Reserve. Now, as Tim Pucco points out properly, uh, they can, the administration can commit to that, but Congress can undo it. And so that's why it is important that people stay engaged in this effort. I mean, remember, uh, almost half of the Congress is composed of Republicans who, uh, you know, just four years ago or five years ago, voted to open up the Arctic Refuge, which is to the east of here, which is one of those kind of America's Serengeti, uh, iconic places. They voted to open that up for new oil and gas leasing for the first time ever. And so we have this problem that we have, you know, a significant number of people represented in Congress who want to not only go forward with Willow, but to develop the entire Arctic, including the Arctic Refuge. So uh, that is why it's important that people stay engaged on this. And as I said, the Biden administration yeah. has signal it wants to move in this direction, but they need the political support to be able to do it. But John Leshy, people, as you understand, feel an incredible sense of betrayal. Some do anyway, um, and even particularly from Interior Secretary Deb Holland. And as someone who worked in the Interior Department, do you want to give us just some insight into, because she was clearly against it, I think, as a Congress member against Willow, uh, the Willow Project, and now as a as an Interior Secretary is having to basically support it and 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 explain why to the public. Do you want to just give some insight into our listeners into what's what happens at the Interior Department level, the things that they need to weigh and balance with an administration? Yes, I mean, I can't uh, peer into her mind, but I, uh, you know, I can tell you that the, the context here for the administration as a whole 
was as we've talked about, we have existing leases, we have this history and inertia in this direction, and we also have the support of most of the Alaska Natives, including the, the member of Congress who is herself an Alaska Native. So I think that made it very difficult for uh, Secretary Holland uh, because uh, to go forward, to, to uh, try to resist Willow at this point would be to, to go in the teeth of the support of uh, uh, the leading uh, Democratic politician in the state who is herself an Alaska Native. And that certainly made it difficult. Well, again, John Lashie was Interior Department Solicitor under President Bill Clinton. Yesenia Funes, Climate Director of Atmos, is also with us. Tim Puko, Climate Correspondent covering politics and policy for The Washington Post. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Frank in San Jose next. Frank, thanks for waiting. You're on. Hi. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm 71 years old. I'm a lifelong environmentalist. Uh, worked under Jimmy Carter's administration, where he first understood global warming was happening. Uh, so I'm calling basically to reinforce what many of your panelists were saying. This is a complex decision, but on top of that, this will be used as a political cudgel by the far right to sh- to weaken and to divide progressives. And I strongly encourage, particularly young progressives out there, to get back to voting uh, in 2024, the importance of that at local, state and federal levels. Every time, in my personal opinion, I picture every time a Republican gets elected, you've put basically an executive from Conoco or Exxon into a position of power. If you vote for a Democrat, you'll put someone who is more progressive in power. That's the nature of the politics of our country. It's that simple. So I strongly encourage people to use this moment to not disengage, but to over-engage and get the Democratic Party moving on voter registration and voter turnout. That's, mm. my, that's my comment. Well, Frank, thank you. Tim Pugo, I know you're not a, a politics correspondent, but I am curious just in terms of what you think about the political fallout or gain for Biden through this. There has been talk about how how much young people are so angry about this came out for Biden and may not come out in 2024, given the fact that uh, given the fact that young people are, are not necessarily the most reliable in terms of turnout compared to other populations in the United States, while others say that that this may give him a leg up with moderates. I risk everything that you're saying about young voters and their you know, their emphasis on climate is is not something that we've seen before with with prior generations. Um, everyone in political circles, like Biden political circles, are aware of this. A lot of their messaging is clearly aimed at that community to to make sure as best they can that they keep that community on board. Uh, I think that what they're going to say. Uh, when it comes to those politics and, and trying to energize those youth voters, they have to convince those 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 climate voters that that the Inflation Reduction Act and its huge budget for climate spending is much more important than the Willow Project. Willow gets people excited because it's Alaska um, wilderness, it's oil oil companies. Um, it is, as a prior caller noted, um, it, it kind of gets people fired up about the limits of incrementalism, the incrementalism that we often see as, as central to, to Washington politics. But, but the Inflation Reduction Act was absolutely not incremental. 
in terms of like the 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 amount of wind and solar power and battery power and, and other efforts at clean power and carbon reduction that it creates, um, theoretically, many times the size, just just exponentially larger than the amount of fossil fuel emissions that would come from the Willow Project. And that's the climate legacy of President Biden. Now, there are great questions about whether they'll be able to execute uh, what's in that law, uh, be able to, to bring it to its full fruition. You know, spending money is, is harder than, than people might realize. Um, but that's surely going to be their political angle for the next couple of years, for the next maybe many years, maybe the rest of the decade, is showing that they can um, spur clean energy projects and other climate-friendly projects across the country with money that they help push through in that Inflation Reduction Act, uh, and then you know convincing voters um, that it's a success and that the that the impact on that to, to address climate change is much greater from the downside of of one Alaskan oil project. Well, let me go to Karen in Oakland. Hi, Karen. You're on. Oh, I think we've lost Karen. And let me go to comment a comment here from Richard who writes, I'm an environmentalist and would strongly prefer this project not go forward. But I believe that if we have any chance of mitigating the worst effects of climate change, we have to think in terms of energy transitions and trades. If Willow goes forward for political or economic reasons, we need to be clear with which other projects won't go forward. And we need to clamp down harder on factors like methane leaks from oil wells. I don't want to hear about villains. I want to hear about the path forward. Yesenia Funes, what is a path forward, do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts on Richard wanting a path forward. What do we do from here? Yeah, I definitely think the path forward lies with communities on the front lines. Um, ultimately, the climate crisis is a crisis of power. It's a crisis of democracy. I know the previous caller, you know, urged um, uh, voters to get engaged, especially around issues of voter registration. And the reality is that um, power is just in an imbalance right now. And so we need to make sure that the power shifts to communities on the front lines who are experiencing climate change and being pushed out of our political system by laws that restrict their access to voting, um, who you know are struggling just to get by with the basic needs um, and the basic day-to-day. Uh, -day. Um, right now, the power lies with companies you know, such as ConocoPhillips, who are putting forth these projects. And so how can we shift the power back to communities? And I think that ultimately comes down to communities seizing that power, demanding more from leaders, um, hitting the streets, doing campaigns. I mean, the climate movement is what it is today as a result of um, communities, grassroots communities demanding power. And so, um, yeah, we had, we had to seize the moment. Yesenia Funes. Climate Director at Atmos. Thank you, Yesenia. Thank you also, John Leshy, Professor of Law at UC College of the Law, San Francisco, and Tim Pucco, Climate Correspondent for Covering Politics and Policy. We definitely got to the nuances, definitely got a lot of your perspectives, listeners. Thank you also, Lakshmi, Sarah, and Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country... We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.